The internet is an amplifier. It flattens space and time to amplify information, connections, and access around the world, driving social change, amplifying marginalized voices, and connecting businesses to a global marketplace. On the other side of the coin, it can amplify perspectives that are generally considered unhelpful to today's society, including disinformation and hate speech. Kara Brisson Boyvin's work is at the nexus of this opportunity and challenge. As the director of research for Media Smarts, a Canadian nonprofit focused on digital and media literacy, she stresses that our online environments shape our online experiences, which in turn affects our capacity to develop empathy and act ethically. So, what information are you interacting with online? Welcome to Let's Talk About the Internet, a conversation about the future of the internet in Canada. This podcast is part of a partnership between Meta and the Walrus. I'm your host, Mohit Rajins. Kara Brisson Boyvin is the Director of Research at Media Smarts. She joins us to talk about the importance of digital media literacy. But first, she discussed this issue at the Walrus Talks at Home, the future of speech online. Let's have a listen to that talk. Hello, my name is Kara Brisson Boyvin, and I am the Director of Research at Media Smarts. Today, I wanted to focus my comments on our online experiences and environments and the implications for the future of speech online. Our online experiences shape our capacity to develop empathy and act ethically. Today's digital media are fully networked, placing each user and consumer at the center of an infinite web of connections and interactions, allowing content to be shared with any number of people on a multitude of online platforms. Both content and mover and users move seamlessly between a handful of large platforms, social networking sites, video sharing sites, and online games, for example. And while individual communities can form and develop their own social norms, within each platform, these values can be easily influenced by those of other communities. Because a community's norms are largely set by the most committed 10% of members, the connections between networks means that small groups of powerfully committed individuals can have a significant impact on the values of much larger communities and platforms. Users don't have to encounter overt hate speech to be exposed to hate online. In fact, much more common are cultures of hatred communities in which racism, misogyny, and other forms of prejudice are normalized. Many online spaces have fairly high baseline levels of racism, sexism, and homophobia. And when hate online goes unchallenged, users may believe that intervention is overreaction. When cultures of hatred are masked as consensus and the behavior is not seen as harmful, the majority of witnesses may not believe intervention is worth the risk of social exclusion. Some aspects of digital communication can lead to empathy traps, which prevent users from feeling empathy in situations where they normally would. When we're using the same screen to talk to our friends that we might use to kill aliens, or when we can't see the people that we are hurting, robbing, or copying from, it's easy to forget that what we do online matters. A lack of sensory feedback can make us less likely to recognize how other people are feeling when we're online. Some or all of the things that would generally trigger empathy in us, a person's tone of voice, their body language, their facial expressions, these can be absent when we interact with them online. 
And this can lead us to say or do things that we wouldn't do offline. We may even have trouble identifying our own emotions when we're engaging online. And a lot of what I've been speaking to in terms of experience highlights the importance of environments in our online interactions. Our most recent research at MediaSmarts and Algorithmic Awareness highlights how architectural designs and defaults, as well as artificial intelligence, are increasingly shaping the online spaces in which we engage, particularly the breadth and depth of content available to us and how the pressure to optimize for recommendation factors such as virality, engagement, watch time, these affect the quality of the content of the content we are experiencing and our capacity to verify whether or not something is true online. In fact, we need to further explore whether or not users may be more likely to trust algorithmically recommended content because of a perception of validity or trustworthiness that stems from content that is curated for them by a platform. Also, when it comes to protecting users' well-being, platforms tend to think in terms of affordances and respond to concerns by adding additional features, such as blocking or muting mechanisms. And users typically resort to these defaults. It's only about 5% of users who end up engaging with tools that go beyond these default architectures, highlighting the need to raise awareness among users so we can more actively and critically make decisions about our user settings. Here's one brief example to illustrate the importance of language in design fixes for combating hate online. For years, if you searched for the word Jew on Google in English, this would bring up an anti-Semitic site. This was manually fixed in English, but if you searched for Juif in French, you would still see an anti-Semitic site. Now, I believe that example has since been corrected, but there are countless other examples of hate existing online in minority languages. This again demonstrates the need for human moderation and oversight along with architectural design fixes. So as you may already be connecting in my comments, our online environments shape our online experiences and vice versa. We need to unpack this reciprocal relationship, particularly in terms of its consequences for user agency, empowerment, and digital well-being, as well as advocating for digital media literacy uh, education as a fundamental right of all technology users, including the various ethical, social, and reflective practices that are essential if we are to develop online resilience and ethical digital citizenship. Thank you. That's Kara Brisson-Boyven speaking at the Walrus Talks at Home, the future of speech online. She joins me now to talk more about digital media literacy. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I'm going to start with trying to get a sense of what exactly you do. You know, what is Media Smarts? What is your role? And why is this work so necessary? Why have you committed to this? Yeah. So, Media Smarts is a nonprofit national Canadian charity for digital media literacy. We've been around for over 25 years now. We started back as a small kind of project of the National Film Board back at a time when sort of our biggest concern was violence on television, if we can remember those days. And we've come so far from that moment. But at the core of what we do has been to build digital media literacy, educational tools and resources. Specifically, we work with Canadian youth and the trusted adults who support them. But in the last at least five or so years, we've really broadened our mandate to provide supports for all Canadians 
And we do that through three main pillars of research, which is what I oversee at Media Smarts, and education, including working with the education sector and K-12 teachers across Canada, and also public education, public awareness campaigns, and then, of course, policy advocacy work as well. So we cover a wide range of digital media literacy issues, pretty much anything you can think of. If it touches the internet or anything digital, we're doing it and trying to just really provide supports for Canadians to make the best use of the internet and digital tools. It's interesting because you are going after a market that's evolving quite a bit. And obviously you're starting to see a a change in real time in the way technology is being used. How does the internet influence our ability to exhibit empathy towards one another? Yeah, I think this is a really important thing for us to consider, especially today when so much of our lives has been thrust online, including our relationships and the way that we interact with people. And one of the things that has become a real struggle or challenge for us is empathy. And this is because sometimes our digital relationships makes it hard for us to engage with people in the way that we would offline. And by that, I mean, we sometimes miss some of those signals, things like body language, facial expression, tone of voice that would cue for us an interaction, an offline personal interaction, how somebody is feeling. So when we're engaging online, we have to be almost even more intentional in thinking about in reminding ourselves that there's another person on the other side of the screen or the device. And this leads up to some of the bigger problems that we're having right now with reference to hatred online. And in your talk, you mentioned the cultures of hatred. So how do you think they actually form and are influenced on and by the internet? Yeah, this is really important. We don't have to encounter overt hate speech to really be exposed to hate online. Actually, what's much more common are what you're referring to, these cultures of hatred. And these are communities in which things like racism, misogyny, and other forms of prejudice are normalized. So for example, when someone uses a racist term in a comment or shares a meme of a person with a disability, you know, to make a joke, many online environments, and in particular, those popular with adolescent boys, have really high levels of these cultures of hatred or sometimes called casual forms of prejudice. And not only do these communities and platforms become unfriendly and sometimes unsafe environments for members of these targeted groups, but hate mongers or hate groups will also troll these spaces and mainstream sites and make these kinds of hateful comments to either provoke a reaction from someone, but also to kind of test the waters and get a sense of whether they might be able to recruit. How big are the potential pools of recruitment? Again, if these cultures of hatred are considered normalized, it makes it easier for hate groups to kind of infiltrate and move and potentially shift someone into spaces that are engaged in much more overt forms of hatred, for example. I feel like there's two things at play here. On one hand, if the hate exists and people need to communicate, they'll create social media platforms on every single platform we can imagine. They'll create their own, they'll create private groups and stuff. And on the other side, we've got big tech companies having to change and alter their design in order to moderate for this. Do you feel like tech companies are doing enough right now to be able to monitor and moderate what's happening online? 
I think that there are definitely things that can be done. I think there's more that needs to be done. So there's two things you're touching on. I mean, the first, I could speak to some of the research that we did with young people around online hate. And what was really clear in their responses was a desire for much more clear, approachable and accessible what a lot of platforms call community standards. And these are really like, what are the values of this space? Let's set the tone. Let's make it clear. And that's because what we know from research is that those moral values are typically set by the loudest 10% of the community. That's not the majority, but they're the loudest sort of silent minority and they can really push the dial. So if platforms can do a much better job, frankly, at clearly setting the tone, standard and values of behavior and acceptable speech and spaces, then that can help mitigate that. The other thing is that users were really clear that they want clear reporting mechanisms that are also easy and accessible to use. And thirdly, that they want to see enforcement is happening. We heard a lot from young people that they felt really sort of disenchanted with reporting. Like, what's the point? I do this and it goes into the Ethernet and I have no idea what happens to this report. And so one of the things that we're suggesting, and we've written a whole white paper on this for platforms, you can find it on our website, mediasmarts.ca. But one of the things that we were really trying to push in this space are that platforms either centralize in some way, aggregate, this is how many reports we've had in this area, and this is how we're acting on them. And again, it sends signals to the members of this space that these behaviors are unacceptable and these are the kinds of reactions you can expect and consequences if you break the codes that we set out. So I think reporting is something where there's a lot of room for improvement in this space. It's a very interesting point that you bring up regarding design, because I do feel that many people who use these platforms want to know more about these different design fixes. But what are some of these fixes? and What models are working and what else can be done? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on with design fixes. And I think we're going to see a lot more in the future here. So for in the online hate context, Research is showing that deplatforming has mostly positive impacts because, again, it sends signals to the community that these kinds of behaviors or speech or content is egregious, it's unacceptable, and it provides hate groups themselves with less access to potential new recruits. So that's beneficial. It does mean, though, that online communities more overtly engaged with hate content may be radicalized quickly and more extremely which points to the need to actually counter these architectural designs of the online spaces that we're engaging in. I think the other big thing to think about here are algorithms. And it's something that we're thinking a lot about at Media Smarts. And it's something that I think we are just scratching the surface on in terms of our governance of them, our thinking about their impacts on us culturally and socially and morally. And so algorithms are working in all of the various online environments that we engage in. They're moving content and ideologies in particular ways. And you need to consider how things like content takedown or the 24-hour rule, those are going to impact the algorithms, like the kind of recommendation algorithm that we see or engage with so much on the platforms that we utilize, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. And platforms tend to think in terms of affordances. And by this, I mean, they tend to respond to concerns by, well, we're going to add more features, more additional features, more privacy protections and this and that. But what we know from research is that users 
more heavily rely on the defaults. So for example, 70% of YouTube views come from that up next feature. Typically only 5% of users end up engaging with tools that go beyond these default settings. Architectural fixes are only gonna go so far. I think they're important. But for us, I mean, it's the critical thinking. We need to equip users with critical thinking tools so that they can one, know what these architectural forces are and two, be able to make critical decisions about them. It's so interesting to me as a father to hear some of your points because it makes me think, you know, should I be doing better about following up with my kids to see what they understand? I'm particularly worried about the idea of what disinformation and misinformation is. You know, we've talked about online hate, but I'm curious from your perspective, what is the difference between disinformation and misinformation? I think when it comes to mis and disinformation, generally speaking, misinformation refers to incorrect or misleading information presented as fact, but that is unintentionally spread. Whereas disinformation refers to information which is deliberately deceptive. So misinformation that intentionally or deliberately is spread. So again, misinformation, unintentional disinformation, there's some intention behind it. But obviously here, like the line is not very clear. And so for us, from an educational perspective, it's also not always that valuable to make the distinction. And that's why we don't necessarily address it at length in our work. Instead, we want people to understand that a lot of misinformation isn't intentionally trying to get us to believe one particular thing. It's really designed to make us question anything. And this is particularly troubling because we can begin to doubt our own information-seeking practices or processes, and we become cynical rather than skeptical. When really we want to be skeptical, critical thinkers, we don't want to become doubting cynics where we can't determine if anything is true and kind of fall into this nihilistic, really difficult place of, I don't know what to trust anymore. And I think that's the biggest question. How do we know who or what to trust? That's the key. Not whether a specific fact is necessarily true, but whether the source is reliable. Right. I mean, how do we stop the spread of it if we don't know the root of it, right? Yeah. And so I guess what I'm wondering from your perspective, how do we play a part in stopping the spreading? And can we? Or do we ignore it and just not click on it? What are our responsibilities as people? So first and foremost, we've got to go to the original source. It's really easy today to say that something or someone is an institute or a university and they're not necessarily a reliable source of information. So we can do things like a quick search on Wikipedia to first and foremost tell us if this source actually exists. When you're on social media, we can't necessarily conflate a person we trust, like an uncle or a neighbor or a friend, with a trusted source. We need to get to that original source. And at Media Smarts, we've done a really large public education campaign, has a whole bunch of really helpful tools and tip sheets and resources for educators, for parents, for kind of anybody who's interested in equipping themselves with some basic information authentication skills. And I really want to emphasize that this doesn't need to be difficult and it doesn't need to be time consuming. Typically, one of the four steps I'm about to mention will get you to a place where you can determine if something is reliable or fact from fiction really quickly. 
So just briefly, what those four steps are, it's you know, use fact-checking tools. There are experts who do this. You can go to Snopes and they've already done the work for you. Second, as I've been talking about, find that source. Make sure you're on the original source. Verify the source. You can do that, again, either using Wikipedia or Google to see if they've got a good track record. And then lastly, check other sources. Do a Google News search and see if other trusted, reliable sources are also reporting on this. That will help you to determine the validity of a particular news story or piece of information. It seems like a lot of work to do in order to just feel comfortable about what we're reading or consuming. So what do you think are the biggest gaps in our digital media literacy and how do we end up improving it in Canada? It seems like a lot, but again, I want to emphasize that at the individual level, these are simple things that can often take an extra 20 to 30 seconds to do a quick search and check. And you mentioned earlier in one of your questions, what do we do? What's our role? Like This is our responsibility. One of the things that I want to emphasize is we live now in a networked environment. We don't like to think about it, but all of us has the potential to go viral. It's the weirdest thing to think about that today, something I put on Twitter could be spread to millions and millions of people, but it can. And we need to remind ourselves of that every time we're making a decision to post something or share something, especially if it's information that could potentially influence other people's decisions, things like, you know, decisions about health or political decisions. And so we do really have a responsibility to remind ourselves that we are now engaging in an environment where with one click, we can be impacting millions and millions of people. So I do think that we need to think about that responsibility. With that said, we can't just lay this entirely on the individual. There are social and societal responsibilities here as well. Government, platforms, industry, there are roles and responsibility for all the players at different levels. In those regards, I mean, we need to designate resources and supports to making sure Canadians feel like they have the kinds of authentication skills that they need to be able to engage in an online information ecosystem and feel that they're safe or that they are getting you know, reliable information or have the skills and capacities to sift through this ecosystem. Much of your research seems to revolve around surveying and speaking with young Canadians. What are young people saying and what surprises you about how they're experiencing their world online? It's one of the things that I think drew me to this work. And one of the things that I, I love so much is talking to young people and getting a sense of what their experiences are. So at Media Smarts, we've had this great pleasure of doing this study called Young Canadians in a Wireless World. It was originally called Wired, but it's a study that's been running for over 20 years. So we've since changed the name to reflect the changing world in which young people are engaging in online. But it has tracked young people's experiences and attitudes and behaviors on the internet for over 20 years. So we've seen and heard some really profound thinking from young people about the impacts of the internet on their lives. Just before the pandemic in 2019, we wrapped up the qualitative phase of phase four of this project, which was focus groups with young people and their parents, not together separately, but some great conversations had there. We've interviewed over 20 years, over 20,000 parents, teachers, and young people. And I can say some highlights from our conversations this time around emphasized or focused on what we were calling or what is largely called in the literature, if you want, online resiliency. 
And it's often understood as an individual trait. So things like how you can effectively self-regulate in stressful situations, sometimes referred to as you know, bouncing back. But what we really wanted to emphasize and push back on was that individualization of the need to you know, be resilient online. We really wanted to focus on communal, collective forms of resilience. So how we can support young people in their digital well-being. So some key kind of takeaways from what we've been talking to young people about. Young people use social media to connect with their peers, to get involved in pop culture, but they are fearing and are very cognizant and aware of becoming too attached. And they actually prefer face-to-face interactions, which I think goes against a lot of our stereotypes of young people. There's a lot of information at their fingertips. But the amount of inaccurate content that they see, the myths and disinformation we've been talking about, makes it really difficult for young people to use technology to learn. Schools are providing them with opportunities to use technology to learn, but young people were telling us they appreciate that. But sometimes they actually would rather use a pen and pencil. And there are times where they're actually being told they have to use technology and they prefer not to. I think it speaks to this sort of conflation of technology is somehow more advanced and is somehow better in particular contexts. And young people are pushing back against this, right? And then we have other biases and stereotypes. Like I was talking to some young people who were saying, you know, my parents are freaking out that I'm always on the screen. I have read like 400 books on my iPad. I love reading on, on in the reading apps. And it's like, we really need to move away from these discussions of quantity into quality. And that's not true just for young people. That's true for all of us. The literature conversations around screen time are actually moving in that direction themselves. It's no longer a question necessarily of quantity. It's a question of quality. The other thing I did want to mention is that they were talking a lot about surveillance, surveillance in the classroom, surveillance at home, and how that was eroding the trust that you have in the adults who are supposed to be there to help them. And they talked a lot about this creepiness factor of surveillance. So whether that's in classroom management systems and monitoring, whether it's some of the technology parents or or guardians are trying to use to help moderate or manage online engagement, but it really was eroding young people's sense of trust. And for us at Media Smarts, this is really key because I would say from day one, and it's still consistent 20 plus years later, The biggest thing when it comes to supporting young people is grounding a relationship and trust in open communication. Young people will tell us time and time again, I don't want to feel like people are hovering over my shoulder, but I want to know that they have my back. Hmm. It's interesting because I actually speak on the topic of redefining screen time as well, a result of experience with my kids. I know that it's helpful for parents to hear it from other people adults about what's happening because otherwise we become victims to socializing the idea that all screen time is bad and that staying connected might not be the greatest thing. So I love so many of the topics that you discussed through Media Smarts, but I want to ask you about the future. When you think about the future of digital media literacy, we've spoken about it a lot in this conversation. You know, what snap your fingers and need it? What is needed now. We can't wait anymore. Yeah, I think one of the things we didn't really talk about, and we could have a whole other podcast on, so I'll just mention it briefly, 
are closing digital divides and digital gaps. So that would be one of my first, like, this is the thing we can't turn our eyes from anymore. So we need to be able to think about digital equity and digital inclusion, and not just from a infrastructural access perspective. Digital inclusion in Canada is geographically divided, yes, and things like bandwidth and access are incredibly important. But digital divides are also social, cultural, and political. They also mirror all of the other kinds of inequities in our society. So we need to come at that problem from both perspectives. And one of the things that we've been working on in this last year is trying to get momentum at a federal level behind a national digital literacy strategy for Canada. Let's find a home for this in the federal government. Let's get a department who's going to really step up and support this including with some significant long-term financial supports to make sure that the myriad of organizations on the ground doing this work are supported to support Canadians. So that's the one finger snap. And the other one, I think, is what we've been talking about. I think we have a lot more work to do to think about algorithmic literacy and online architectures. One of the projects that I'm really hopeful we'll get to work on in the next couple of years will look at the influence and impact of algorithms on our information-seeking capacities. Because we know from work that we've done and others that sometimes we tend to be more trusting of that recommended content because of this appearance of validity. And so that's one of the things I would love to dive deeper into is to explore that hypothesis and then to look at how we can provide supports and resources based on those findings. A lot of the work that we do at Media Smarts is research for the purposes of building educational tools and resources to support Canadians. And that's another area where I really think we need more work. What's exciting to you about the future of the internet? I think what's exciting about the internet, I know we spend so much time thinking about sometimes the kind of difficult sides. I think what's really exciting, especially working with young people, is how hopeful they are, but also how they use the internet in this beautiful way for facilitating meaningful offline engagement. And I'll give you one example. One of the projects that I was working on in the focus groups we had, on the one focus group, I had the child, the son, and in the other focus group, I had the father. And the son was describing how sometimes his parents can be concerned with how much he plays video games, but they had this interaction And the father then recounted the same story in the focus group that he had, where he was concerned with how much time the son was spending and then overheard his son talking on the headset because they play socially with other peers and started asking his friend group about a person he was interested in romantically. And, you know, how do I approach this person? And the father said, "Okay, it clicked. My son would have never been confident enough to ask his peers that face to face. But there was something about the playing the game, the kind of cool, kind of less intimidating environment, he could ask that question and get some real support from his friends. So those are the things that excites me, the way in which it actually facilitates relationship, interaction, engagement. We need to hold on to those. We need to hold on to the ways that we can use these tools to facilitate the things that are meaningful to us. Sometimes I hear people say things like, have we lost, you know, all human interaction? It's like, no, we haven't. We just need to reimagine it and use these tools to help facilitate the things that we love about being human and socializing and interacting with each other. Kara, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Well, thank you so much. It was so great to have this conversation. Kara Brisson Boyvin is the director of research at Media Smarts. You can find out more about her work by checking out mediasmarts.ca. Thank you for listening to our final episode of season one of Let's Talk About the Internet, a podcast for Meta produced by the Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Thank you to our producers, Nikki Manfredi and Jason Herterick, and our audio editor, Michael Allen, who helped put together this episode. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and share it with a friend.